Want to drive greater success in social commerce? With Deloitte's latest creator economy research, you can. After surveying over 500 creators and 500 brands, our insights are helping CMOs and marketing teams harness the power of content creators. And not only that, but how to do it well. See for yourself by visiting cmo.deloitte.com today. Hey there, it's Jim Stengel, host of the CMO Podcast. We're all marketers here, so let's be real for a sec. We all know that your website shouldn't be a static asset. It should be a dynamic part of your strategy to build your brand and drive conversions. That's Marketing 101. But 54% of marketing leaders say web updates take too long. That's over half of you listening right now. And that's where Webflow comes in. Their visual-first platform allows you to build, launch, and optimize web pages fast. That means you can set ambitious marketing goals and your site can rise to that challenge. Learn why teams like Dropbox, IDEO, and Orange Theory all trust Webflow to achieve their most ambitious goals today at webflow.com. What's the first brand you remember making an impact on you as a young girl growing up in that dairy farm? I was nine years old when we got a television, but we began a game as children. Who could name the commercial first? Probably the first brand that impressed me was Benetton. The United Colors of Benetton. It was so exotic. Hi, I'm Jim Stengel, and I help major brands find their purpose and activate it, and the profits follow. For seven years, I was the global marketing officer for Procter & Gamble, where I oversaw the marketing of hundreds of brands. You may not know it, but the CMOs, the chief marketing officers of all of your favorite brands, are trying to connect you with your favorite products and services through purpose. And on this show... I delve into how they do it. My guest today in the CMO podcast is Margaret Malloy, the Global Chief Marketing Officer at Siegel & Gale, one of the largest agencies focused on brand strategy, design, and brand experience. Siegel & Gale is part of Omnicom, one of the world's largest marketing, media, and communications holding companies. My guest, Margaret, is a native of Ireland. She grew up on a dairy farm as the eldest of six children and graduated from the University of Ulster as a first-generation college graduate. Margaret later earned her MBA from Harvard and has had a variety of roles in marketing before taking on her global CMO role at Siegel & Gale in 2013. Margaret says her personal purpose is to never lose the drive for community and connection. And after this conversation, there is no doubt she will ever lose it. This is my conversation with a fellow podcast host, CMO, and advocate of Irish fashion. Here's Margaret Malloy. Margaret, welcome to the CMO Podcast. You have been called by the Irish Times the unofficial ambassador of Ireland. I love that. So tell us about that and tell us if that sort of was maybe an unspoken ambition of yours when you moved to the States. It's certainly a compliment. But first, hello, Jim. How are you? What a treat. We are going to have fun today, Margaret. I don't doubt it. Every time I see you, I have fun. And I've been a huge fan of the podcast. I have to let you in on a secret. Yours is the first podcast I've ever listened to. And I am consistently a listener. So thank you for everything you do for the community. You know, you referenced the accolade that I've been considered an ambassador, but you are such a powerful ambassador for our marketing community. And, you know, ambassador is such a loaded word, isn't it? I mean, for me, it means just waving the flag in a positive way for any community. 
I was born and raised in Ireland. We can talk about that at whatever mm-hmm. level of detail you consider interesting. And very proud of my heritage. Came to the United States straight out of college. A very naive but very determined young lady. And recognized that moment I got off the airplane in New York City at JFK. I'd never been. It was for ostensibly a one-year internship. I knew this was the spot for me. The energy, the sense of possibilities it afforded. And I've never returned to live, but I've always taken my heritage with me, the values, the sense of community, the work ethic, and it served me well. And I'm proud to have that accolade. It's probably a result of some of the work I've done in the fashion industry on a pro bono basis. A few years back, I set up as a middle-aged woman, naively a hashtag, wearing Irish, no less. I know. We will talk about that some more. We can talk about that. And, And it was that effort that earned me some visibility in my home country. Well, now... You also, I understand, speak Gaelic, right? I don't think we've had a Gaelic speaker on the show. And thank you for all the kind words, Margaret. It's it's wonderful to see you again. You are a bright light in our industry, and that's why I'm so looking forward to this show. But I think you should get us started well in this podcast by a Gaelic greeting of some form. Could you share that with our listeners? Well, I'll share one your listeners who visited Ireland may appreciate, and that is Kid Mila Falcha Roth. 100,000 welcomes. And that is more than a greeting. I think it's an ethos that pervades Irish culture. We're very welcoming. Hospitality is very important. And, you know, it's, it's interesting because hospitality is something I bring to bear in our marketing work as well. I just recorded a podcast about an article that I wrote in Harvard Business Review with two of my authors, and I had the authors on the show, and we just talked about, you know, at the end of the day, great marketing, whether or not you call it brand marketing or performance marketing, is about a relationship. And if that's your metaphor of having a, of having a wonderful relationship with your client, your consumer, and judging everything you do versus how what makes for a great, wonderful, giving, loving relationship, you won't go wrong. Oh, makes great sense. And a shout out to my alma mater there, Harvard Business School. Yes, indeed. Yeah, I mean, it's about relationship. And I think that simplifies the whole conversation. A lot of what we do is not that complex. If you boil it down to the humanity and relationships are all about human connections. Now, that doesn't make it easy. It just gives us a frame through which to view the opportunity and the task at hand. Well, I'm going to flip the script a bit on this show. You're a loyal listener, and thank you for that. But we always end with a creative brief about the individual. Well, I think you're such an interesting human being, Margaret. I want to start this episode with the creative brief. And my first question to you is, you have said in another venue that there are three emojis to describe you. The raised hand woman, the graduate hat woman, and the microphone. So tell us why each of those visual images say something about you. Well, thank you for the research. And I should remind your listeners that this conversation is entirely improv. <laughs> That's right. So Jim does part of my not equity. share the questions. <laughs> so our, I, I love it. And it gives us the chance to be authentic. So you'll have to keep me honest here, Jim. The graduate emoji speaks to education as being my pathway to 
to so many venues. I grew up very modestly. I'm a first-generation high school graduate, the eldest of six in Ireland. And in those days, I had access to something my parents did not, beginning with a high school education, for me, culminating with a graduate degree. And that is a key part of my identity, my quest for knowledge, My quest to be a good student is always a part of who I am. And also my desire to prioritize, frankly, thought leadership and education in all of our marketing programs and in everything I do, because I believe knowledge is so powerful. So that's the graduate one. The raised hand is, I suppose, indicative of my bias for action and my enthusiasm for everything and a sense of wonder coming from modest beginnings, landing in New York City. If you haven't got a sense of wonder, it's not the right place to be. And raising your hand is more about expressing that wonder with a degree of confidence that you can get it done. So what was the third one? Third one was the microphone. Yeah, the microphone, it's it's a little bit around acknowledging that we all have a platform particularly as marketers, and that platform has a lot of value and we need to be judicious in using it and amplifying voices. And in my case, I I have a voice. You referenced how I amplify all things Irish, but also professionally, I'm very keen to amplify diverse voices. So those are the reasons for the choices of emojis and a little bit of fun because you have to have fun. Absolutely. Are there emojis that would definitely not describe you? I think a thumbs down emoji, because I think there's merit to be found if you look hard enough in every idea. Anything vulgar, I have a distaste for profanity. So um, that just doesn't resonate with me. Myers-Briggs personality test is the same as mine. ENTJ, extroverted, intuitive, thinking, and judging. How has that personality profile of yours, how's that helped you be a great CMO? Obviously, there are great CMOs with very different profiles, right? Mm. That's that's diversity at work. But that particular one for you, how's that helped you be such a great CMO who's had a wonderful 10-year run and still going? I think we may also share the same star sign. Are you Taurus? Yes, I am. There yeah. you go. So is my wife. <laughs> so is my son. So is my daughter-in-law. So we have we have a strong family. Yes, <laughs> and perhaps stubborn, but that's what Yes, yes, but it works. Because <laughs> every strength has its shadow, doesn't it? Absolutely. So let's think about it. ENTJ. I, I firstly I subscribe to your view that different personalities can be successful in, in many settings. You know, first it begins with just having an awareness. So I'm glad you called it out of where you are centered, where you get your energy from. So in every endeavor, be it professional, professional leadership in particular, understanding where you are is an important important starting point. And I skew pretty high on all of those dimensions. So I'm very clearly in the extroverted camp, which means I get my energy from a group. And that speaks to my practice of marketing, which is often around convening people. Mm. The thinking part may speak to the rigor and recognizing the importance of data, but notwithstanding an awareness of my own personality, if you will, over the years, I've come to recognize the importance of 
cognitive diversity. My husband's very much an I, for example. And the need to have different voices in a conversation, in decision-making on any level. And there was a time when, frankly, I don't think I appreciated that. I had to unlearn some assumptions around certain skill sets being superior to others. When you spend time at an institution that I did, like the Harvard Business School, where the vast majority of the students are also ENTJ, you can develop a sense of that's the way it is as leaders. But over the years, I've unlearned that. I've recognized that, yes, if you want to make a decision quickly, bringing people with the same lived experiences and same personalities is a highly efficient way to get the job done. However, if you want to make an effective decision and want diverse inputs, you actually can yield a better decision. So there was a time in my life where I had certain assumptions around perhaps even superiority of extroverts, frankly. And I've evolved that thinking quite significantly to recognize the importance of difference, to get to the better end result. And I think that has a lot of applicability to leadership and a lot of applicability to marketing. And that awareness, my self-awareness first, but also the awareness of difference, I think has made me a better leader uh, internally in my organization at Siegel and Gale and more broadly in the community. It's a wonderful self-awareness exercise and for a team exercise. I was, I'm ENTJ as well, and I'm like a hundred zero on N, which can be dangerous. Mm -hmm. I mean, highly, highly intuitive. And so I make sure when I'm working with people that, you know, there's someone who can balance that. And so I think it's, it's really, really important for team dynamics, self-awareness. And, and also I, I've taken it a few times in my life and it does shift which is interesting. I, I, I used to be highly extroverted. I'm now more balanced. Uh, and there's not a value judgment there. Neither is. That's right. There's no value judgment. It's just recognition of difference and seeing value in difference. Yeah. And that just philosophically can transcend team leading to just society in general and being a good citizen. And we all have work to do there, but it begins with self-awareness. And, you know, frankly, appreciating what you are, liking yourself is a good starting point yeah. too. And that presents as confidence and positivity. At least that's what I strive to present. We are both one of six children. Mm -hmm. You're the eldest of six and I am the middle child of six. You grew up in a dairy farm. I grew up in farm country, but actually in a city. If your siblings were here, how would they describe you as a child? And is that different from how they might describe you today? In some ways, it's different. In many ways, it stayed constant. They would describe me as studious, academic, uh, hardworking in certain domains, but not hardworking on the farm, not athletic or dexterous or of any of those qualities. Leader, definitely leader, perhaps on a less kind day, they might say bossy, ambitious socially ambitious, professionally ambitious, and also, I think, kind in willing to help each other, very much uh, values-driven. Um, I, I think those elements would have stayed the same. I'm not sure they would have described me as having an interest in fashion <laughs> in those days. That, that's certainly not the case. Probably the microphone would still have been there in the sense I did a lot of recitations and drama 
growing up as a child and put a lot of mass in the ability to communicate. Uh, I, I think they would mostly have been consistent over the years. What's the origin of your interest in fashion? Well, I think it's a function of appreciating beauty in many different settings and recognizing that fashion, funnily enough, it's sort of the intersection of art and personal branding. So over the years, as, as you would recall, Jim, I've had the opportunity and privilege to represent my company in various stages. And that requires getting up and getting dressed. And part of my presentation that I've always been aware of is what I wear and the power of color and the power of packaging almost, back to your days mm -hmm. in packaged goods, the power of packaging to be memorable. And that reflects itself first in my own selections and then subsequently appreciating the diversity of talent in Ireland around fashion and a sense that, my gosh, there are designers doing world-class work and they don't have a platform. So seeing myself in a very small way as being able to represent their wares. What would you say is the key to success for today's CMO? If you said data, you wouldn't be the only one. At Deloitte, however, we believe data is only half of the equation. The other half, story. Because data is the language of business, but story is the language of humans. And we believe the most successful CMOs know how to harness the power of both data and story. To learn more about Deloitte's CMO program and how we can help today's CMOs succeed, visit cmo.deloitte.com. We've all been there. You spend millions of dollars each year driving traffic to your company's website, and then the results come in and they're just not what you hoped. On top of that, 81% of marketing leaders say website ownership is a challenge. So what do you do? Well, you switch to Webflow. Let me tell you why. Webflow's visual first platform empowers your team to own your company's most valuable dynamic marketing asset, your website. From launching a new site to optimizing for SEO and conversions, Webflow gives you the tools you need to drive business growth fast. Unlock your website's full potential when you build, manage, and host with Webflow. Get started today at webflow.com. And that's the hashtag wearing Irish. And tell us a bit more about that and why I know that this is important to you, how you present yourself, but why is this, uh, I think, amplifying Irish fashion? Why is that important to you? Why have you chosen that as one of your areas where you spend your precious time? Well, it's a little bit of a respect for creativity and the aesthetic, coupled with a recognition that I have that platform and the desire to tell a story. So in many respects, I think the skills and talent of the Irish fashion industry is an untold story. And I took it upon myself to tell that story, first by wearing the products myself, and secondly, by hosting events in New York City, figuring out ways with generous partners to fundraise, to bring a number of designers out to display their wares. We did a wonderful program in 2018 and 2019. And also this idea of access and exposure. I feel extremely fortunate that I've had access, in my case, to education and the opportunity to live in the United States. 
And I think the key to any industry to be successful is having access and exposure. And I saw my platform, my ability to convene, the many communities that I have access to and could convene as an opportunity to share with the fashion industry. And in many respects, in in many countries, certainly in Ireland, it's been a little bit of an underdog to the tech industry because tech dominates the conversation around jobs and around the economy. And the economic impact from an economic development standpoint of tech is extraordinary. But I think what people often miss is the positive externalities of fashion. And back to your training and mine in brand, Jim, if Ireland can be perceived as a country of beautiful design, then it can be attractive to other industries as well. And fashion is a very accessible way to express a brand. It's available to everyone at at a variety of different price points. And I look at countries like Italy, who have done a wonderful job of associating fashion with their country and their nation branding. And I think Ireland has done a tremendous job of associating hospitality with Ireland. And that's translated indeed into call center work, not limited to the hospitality industry, associating technology, high tech, associating even philanthropy and the performing arts. Many people can name uh, an actor or a writer, but not so much in the aesthetic and specifically in the visual arts and fashion. I think that's an opportunity that I wanted to highlight and continue to highlight. Well, you're, you are wearing our listeners. Obviously, this is a podcast. They can't see you. I can. You're wearing a beautiful magenta blouse. You have a beautiful sky blue background. So a very, very happy presentation today. <laughs> now, we always ask this question. You may know this one's coming. What's the first brand you remember making an impact on you as a young girl growing up in that dairy farm? I preface it with a story, Jim, because as children, when we got a television, so I was nine years old when we got a television. Frankly enough, people can do the math. It was when the Pope came to Ireland. So a very classic Catholic household in Ireland. And my father got it for my grandfather. He was elderly and was unable to go to the crowds to visit. But we began a game as children who could name the commercial first? So between the shows in Ireland, now keeping in mind, we had two shows, so but lots of commercials. So from a very early age, I became really interested in brands and specifically brand names. Probably the first brand that impressed me subconsciously was Benetton, the united colors of Benetton. It was so exotic in a country where I wasn't exposed beyond a, a very traditional Irish debt. So the demographic at the time was very much a white people. And this, the ads represented people from different cultures. The clothing was vibrant and colorful. It was happy. And frankly, from an economic standpoint, it was not accessible to my budget. So it had that aspirational quality that you would save up for. So Benetton, I think, impressed me as a child and many other brands followed. How did P&G advertising do for you as a child? Did you get a lot of the P&G brands? Did you, did you recognize their logos or their, their uh, slogans early? I recognized a lot of home care brands. I should say, I'm not sure I knew if they were P&G or Unilever. So I'll, I'll throw some names at you and you'll tell me. All but right, I sure will. 
very liquid. Oh, P&G for sure. Very liquid was a brand. And it's interesting because I, I did listen to your podcast with uh, Mark and Marco, and I think they referenced very liquid. And what, what struck me about very liquid is, and again, I wasn't the best at household chores. Let's let's if my siblings were here, they would be laughing now that I was referencing household chores. But what struck me about that brand is it was very performance oriented. So you pay extra because it got the job done. And that's an association that I've always had with brands. In farming, for example, my parents would buy Dunlop boots, the rubber boots, Mm -hmm. because they were superior from a performance standpoint. And that, again, super subconsciously, because I did not have the branding vocabulary, that struck me as um, something important, that if you're paying extra, it has to deliver performance. Fast forward to years later, we talked about Harvard Business School and Clayton Christensen's work, the late Clay Christensen, Mm -hmm. talks about what's the job to be done. And it's something I always think about when I reflect on brands. What is the job they're doing? And are they doing it in a superior way? And the job, of course, can be functional, emotional. It can have many different dimensions. Last question in the creator brief section before we roll into our section about you as a CMO. Who has been the most inspiring person in your life, Margaret? I'll give you an example of someone who's not with us and that I've never met. Um, My great aunt, so my father's aunt, was a young woman by the name of Bridget Henry. And Bridget boarded the Titanic to come to America. I'm a little emotional as I think about it. As a, as a young woman, and she never made it. And Bridget's ambition, when I think about it, was to be a maid in a grand house in America. And she inspired me because, obviously, a young woman with very little education, no resources, but a lot of ambition. And funnily enough, in our family, the United States had very little lure. No one wanted to go to America. Now, I grew up in a time when the economy was relatively good in Ireland and jobs followed. But I was always intrigued by her, her journey, her ambition. And in some small way, I feel an obligation to fulfill her dreams. And that's a beautiful story. Well, you are fulfilling her dreams, Margaret. You're, you're CMO of a fabulous company, Siegel & Gale. You've been there 10 years. You've had a great run which I've already referenced. I'd like you to reflect a bit about those 10 years. You're about five, four or five times the normal tenure of a CMO. And I'd like you to reflect on why you've had such staying power at this firm. It's a very generative question, Jim, and requires some reflection. I think, first and foremost, thank you for suggesting I've had some impact there. I think the first part is we have wonderful leadership. I've had the benefit of working with, and I say with because we're highly collaborative, two CEOs and others in the executive leadership team who are very supportive of each other. Second component is it's about fit. And by fit, I mean doing the diligence before I arrived to have the self-awareness of where my strengths are and how I could complement the strengths of my colleagues. Third is I'm very aligned with the values 
At Siegel and Gale, we have four values, smart, nice, unstoppable and inclusive. And those values, although not the vocabulary, aligned very much with my values. I talked earlier about education, amplifying diverse voices, all of that. The fifth thing is we do fun work. It's a privilege to watch my brilliant colleagues from many different personality types and many different skills perform their craft. And I have the opportunity to introduce the right clients to our firm. That's my job. And if I could underline that, Jim, I would say finally, every day when I go to work, I believe my job is to generate pride. I want my colleagues to be proud of Siegel and Gale, proud of the work they are doing. I want our clients to be proud that they have engaged Siegel and Gale. I want my guests at our events to feel proud by association. And that very simple mindset has helped me uh, perform my tasks with a lot of uh, good intention, with some good outcomes, with some mistakes, lots of learning. But it's really about generating pride. And I think that's arguably every CMO's job to generate pride because when you are proud of the company and when you're all stakeholders, investors, the community, etc., when they're proud of it, it elicits the right kind of behaviors, a positive uh, desire for success, a desire to spread the word. We talk about viral marketing. You don't spread the word unless you're proud of something. We talk about word of mouth marketing and referrals. We get a lot of referrals because people are proud to have worked with the company and proud of their contributions. So that little frame, I think, has helped me have the staying power and hopefully the contribution. I love the notion of generating pride. I also have heard you speak about your mission at the end of the day is to create a community and create connection. So this these thoughts of pride, community, connection are big, powerful, and I think are the remit of great CMOs. I'd like you, Margaret, to unpack that or click down on it, as you like to say, a bit more about how you do that as you think about how you spend your time, how you plan your week, your month, your year. How do you ensure that you and your team are living that in your day-to-day work with all the distractions that we have, obviously in our, in our world and in our jobs these days. So how do you bring the generating pride, community connection to life day in and day out? Ultimately, it's reflected in resource allocation. I know you believe this too, Jim, but what we do, essentially our priorities dictate how others experience us and our work. So it's how we develop our marketing plan. Specifically, I dedicate a lot of our resources to convening CMOs. I've just returned with my team from a world tour, visiting seven or eight cities around the world, uh, celebrating International Women's Day and using International Women's Day as a lens to have a conversation around the role of brands and inclusion. So it's convening people around the topics that matter to them 
and also getting the balance right between our talking and our listening. So a lot of what I do personally as part of our marketing programming is creating contexts for others to hear each other speak. So the International Women's Day, over the course of the month, we hosted 39 different panelists, all CMOs from Dubai to Dublin, San Francisco to New York, to virtual, and London too. So that's part of it. It's how we dedicate our resources to build community. It's also a function of the content we put out and the appetite for engagement with that inviting others into a conversation by asking questions. Third component is amplifying their voices. So you and I know the DNA of the CMO, I think, rather well. And that population is very thoughtful and has a point of view. So at Siegel and Gale, I believe in providing a platform. So whether it is in my podcast, How CMOs Commit, or our in-person convening of events, it's about providing platform for others to share their views and a recognition that we're all in this together. So if you have that mindset of you're providing the platform, you ultimately develop the power to convene. And I recognize now with my network of Siegel and Gale clients and other communities, I actually have the power to convene. And that's not a power we take lightly. So we expend resources on it in different settings. I talked about in person, also on the podcast, on LinkedIn, amplifying others' work is is probably the best way that we build community. And then being choiceful about we're not everywhere. We're not on every platform, but where we are, we try to be world-class. So I put a lot of effort, for example, into LinkedIn. I'm one of the top marketing voices on LinkedIn. As an organization, we put a lot of effort into our LinkedIn advocacy program, where we as colleagues amplify each other's posts. So it's being choiceful and it's about getting the balance right between presenting a point of view and listening to the audience. I thought I knew you pretty well, but I obviously went deeper in preparation for this show. And you are a prolific and a meaningful content creator you and your company and so and that is very hard that's earned interest and and i think you just explained why that's important and a bit of how you do that i heard some of your leadership panels around international women's day wonderful and your your podcast is a beauty how cmos commit and it's wonderful content and i love the title of it how cmos commit so could you you talk to us a bit about why you named it that and how that has played out in how you've approached those people and those episodes. Thank you for the question. The title is very important to me because I believe I touched on it moments ago that as people or as brands, we are all a product of our commitments. So I want to know your commitments because that will dictate your behaviors, and your resource allocation and your priorities. So that's the topic. Then what we do is we have episodes focused on different issues. For example, we did an entire series on inclusive storytelling. And during that series, we celebrated 
many cultural months from API to Pride to Black History. And I invited CMOs from those communities to talk about the intersection of brand and inclusive storytelling. And I end every interview with the question, what is your commitment to and how will you measure success? I believe that question focuses the mind on priorities. It also acknowledges the balance between our aspirations as leaders and the economic realities that we all have to build our brands within. So inclusive storytelling was one, creativity is another. Again, you can see how the question sort of works. What is your commitment to creativity? How do you commit to creativity and how will you measure success? So I look forward to continuing those conversations. What are you committed to now, Margaret? I think we can probably deduce that from the discussion already. But if you could summarize what the most important areas where you're, you are committed to right now as a leader in your company and beyond that. I'm committed to generating pride in anyone who associates with our brand, in all stakeholders. A double click on that is helping our company win the right business, right being the business where we can do our best work, where my colleagues can be proud and our clients will be proud and that the work will make an impact in society and in the world. I'm committed to being an ambassador of all things Irish, albeit a very lowercase a ambassador. And I'm also very committed to my family. I have the pleasure of co-parenting with my husband, two teenage boys. So I'm very committed, although not particularly skilled <laughs> in that area. None of us are. <laughs> now, how do you measure generating pride? What sort of, how do you know you're doing that as the days and months and years go by? I think you intuit it, Jim. I don't think it would be authentic for me to suggest a framework for that. I mean, it's, it's very intuitive, but some proxy measures you can look at are net promoter score among our clients or more expressed simply referrals. It's one metric. Another metric is employee retention, uh, employee referrals, employee progression as well as People perform better when they're proud of the company. Mm -hmm. And as a proxy, one should see that in career progression of employees. Another very tactical measure can be amplification of our content on platforms like uh, LinkedIn or social media in general. But those are very limited metrics for something that's much more intuited, which is pride. What do you most enjoy about doing the show? You're, you're a lovely host, by the way. You're very gifted in that respect. So I hope you keep doing it. But what do you love most about it? I love when I host the program, which is generally comprised of five panelists. I love when they meet each yeah. other for the first time yeah. in that green room. And I take a little pleasure in, oh my gosh, I introduced through our Siegel and Gale programming, one CMO to another, and maybe something will come of that commercially or professionally. I love that because I see being a connector as a key part of my DNA. I collect people. Jim, not as trophies. I collect them in a very actionable way, the old-fashioned matchmaking way. So I love when that happens spontaneously in our shows. 
I get this question a lot and I find it a challenging one. So I'm going to give it to you. We, we both meet a lot of people, do a lot of shows, record a lot of episodes, create a lot of content. I'm often asked, hey, Jim, what are the big themes coming out of the CMO podcast? Or what are your biggest lessons, your biggest takeaways? And it's challenging because there are so many, uh, but it's a good one. So I'm going to tee that one up for you. If you think about the last year or so and all the amazing people that you've introduced, you've had on your show, you've had on other platforms, what are you seeing as some of the big themes that would have interest and impact with our listeners? I like that you put a time um, parameter around the question because it does it change does. Yeah. over yeah. time. I think number one, and, and my frame is typically brand building. Number one is sustainability, big theme. How do you sustainably build brands? Number two is inclusion, social issues, purpose. And that one, we could spend an entire show talking about how that's evolved, particularly with changes in capital markets and changes in the economic backdrop that brands are being built as a, in that context. The other one that's popular is CMOs on boards and how can CMOs have more impact? So there was a time when I started my career, the conversation was getting a seat at the table. Well, now CMOs firmly have a seat at the table. So it's a question of how can we have CMOs in the boardroom and on boards? Another one that's important is employee engagement and how do we have a brand that speaks to our employees in this environment that's very culturally polarized, particularly in the United States, but broadly. So those are among the themes, one that will always resonate with me and with my colleagues at Siegel and Gale is this quest for simplicity. Now, sometimes I will introduce it or it'll manifest itself in different vocabulary like desire for convenience or clarity. But I believe many of the CMOs that I interview, much like people in general, have so much overload right now. It's sort of a cognitive challenge they are encountering and they're all struggling to, with varying degrees of success to simplify simplify the work they're doing in terms of the brands they're building for their their stakeholders, simplify their own lives, be choiceful around which platforms to engage on. So that's almost, Jim, a meta theme of all of them. The world's complicated. How can I simplify for impact? Would you say of all those themes you've just gone through, and I would agree with those, that this simplification is the most profound the most, the sort of the umbrella idea that maybe lays over all these other concepts? It probably reflects my bias because at Siegel and Gale, we consider simplicity to be very yeah. important and we believe simple is smart. So I, I need to sort of state that as a, a, as a comment. And you've done a lot of research on that. And I've done a lot of work on it. So a little bit of I'm sort of observing and then it, 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 it checks that box. But notwithstanding that, I believe so. I believe simplification interpreted very expansively. It's not about being reductive or um, taking things off. It's about being choiceful. 
I think it's, um, was it Warren Buffett that said, some of the most successful people are those who say no to many things. And the genius of the simplifier is that they know what to say no to and what to pursue. And every CMO is challenged with that question. And in part because our profession, as you know so deeply, Jim, is very accessible to people. Everyone has an opinion on marketing because we're all consumers. We all are exposed to brands, unlike some of our colleagues in different functional areas. So that lends itself to the gorgeous joy of getting lots of inputs. But the inherent challenge in that, of course, is ultimately the CMO has to make those choices. And that's hard. Your firm has done, I think, annual or semi-annual studies on simplicity and very, very much believing that the world's simplest brands are the most successful brands. And I've seen some of your data on that. You've been, you've overseen those studies for many years. And I just wonder if we can, we're already talking about this concept, but if you could go a little bit deeper about if someone's running a brand now, what could they learn from the world's simplest brands that seem to be the most successful brands? What is it about them that is different? You said they know how when to say no, and they say no a lot. And But what about them is special, different? What choices do they make that maybe the less successful brands do not make? So the three financial metrics that are important in terms of the study you referenced very swiftly are consumers are willing to pay more for simpler brands. Uh, they're more likely to recommend a brand that provides simpler experience. And the capital markets also reward simplicity. So we plot the top 10 performers in the global index against the stock market performance and their stocks continue to outperform. So there's a good, strong business case for simplicity. I've talked to a lot of leaders and I think there are a few qualities they share in common, those who simplify. One is they have a good sense of what the brand actually stands for. And that serves as its filter. So solid business strategy translates into clarity, because for me, simplicity is that intersection of clarity and surprise. So they use plain language. They have the confidence to speak plainly. But the surprise is important because if you're not surprising, you run the risk of being dull. And surprise is providing consumers, all stakeholders, with that aha moment and a certain amount of joy. Another mindset that informs the simplifiers is the desire to be useful. Simple brands ask that question, how am I useful in my customer's life? They also, from a brand management perspective, tend to have simplified the product architecture. In other words, they're easy to buy from whether it's B2B or B2C, you know the upgrade path. If you enter at a certain level in a product, you know what to expect. Um, they also recognize that simplicity is not just about the communication. It has to be about the customer journey, much like brand itself. It's more than words and pictures. It's about customer experiences. But if I were to simplify the answer to your question is, it's simple companies are companies where leaders embed simplicity in how they run their organizations, 
in how they reward employees and the, va- the what they value. One of my favorite examples, because I imagine you'd think about an example, is Amazon. And back back when, you know, we know the one click and so much more was created by Amazon. And I believe that Jeff Bezos fundamentally is one of the most wonderful simplifiers out there. Are there other brands that pop up in your research every time you do this study that seem to be always in the top 10? Google is pretty consistent. And again, think of how Google has simplified our lives through search. In fast food dining, interestingly enough, McDonald's does rather well because they've simplified their menus to make it easier for us to go in and buy from them. Uh, and, and there is some change, you know, Uber, for example, made it easier for us to hail a cab. Those brands have done well. What's even more interesting to me, Jim, though, is if I look within a category. So, for example, air travel is a complex category and some brands do better than others. So that's instructive that you can have at once Southwest doing very well in the category and my own country's airline, Ryanair, doing poorly. And when you look at the open ends in the research, it's because the consumers or the travelers feel they're getting hidden fees. So there's an interesting correlation between simplicity and trust. Not that the consumers are complaining about paying the fee, but it's this notion of it wasn't transparent because simplicity is about transparency, about being useful, about convenience, about clarity. And when those qualities are absent, the consumer trust is eroded. I won't mention any brands, but I'm, we are moving homes in Cincinnati. We're restoring an old home and moving into it soon. And I went to inquire about what sort of internet and television service I wanted. And it was awful. It was the most unsimple process I could imagine designing. And, and I think their, their ratings by most customer surveys are terrible. And that's something that is conceptually very easy to fix. And there's lots of success models to fix that. I, you know, I think the car industry has been hated for years and many still hate it, but their sales model has gotten better. There's no doubt about it. If you go in to buy a Tesla, a Lexus, uh, a Ford Mustang, it's way simpler than it used to be. So, uh, so I love your concept. I think it's adding great value to the world. And I love the advice you just so simply shared. And I think if more brands could abide by that, it's a better world. So we're going to flip into a, a, a quick discussion, discussion on generative AI. And we're we're recording this in the Cannes Festival of Creativity season, you know, in late June. Uh, It's going to be a big, big, big theme this year and how it affects our work, our marketing, our company's creativity. And I've heard you say that you believe it's the greatest hope in our industry and also our greatest threat. So that's a big thought. So I'd love you to take us there a bit. Margaret, and why you feel that way, and tell us a bit why you're hopeful and why you think it has a dark side. I think the hope comes from the expectation that it will remove some of the drudgery and the mundane tasks that we as marketers do. And therefore, 
free up our minds for creativity and doing the higher order tasks. That's the hope. The concern is around not this existential crisis thing that so many who live in this world of AI are um, opining on, but very practically the realization that today these large language models have been trained by systems and data that has a lot of inherent biases in it, specifically around the area of inclusion. And if we are learning from the past that was imperfect, and if the models use that learning as the training, then there's risk that it would perpetuate biases on all the aspects we talked about earlier, uh, around gender, around race, around all dimensions of equity. It's not something that I think is insurmountable, but we need to be aware of that as a concern. We said earlier in the show that you probably convene more CMOs than almost anyone on the planet, and you have nice platforms for sharing those insights and through your podcast and other platforms. I'd like you to end this show with a little bit of a reflection uh, targeted towards CMOs who are listening about what you've learned about the characteristics the tendencies, the habits of highly successful, engaging CMOs? Wonderful question. I should say, I think you might be ahead of me in terms of the number of CMOs that you've convened. But, um, you know, it's, it's good to have a target. It's good to have a, a, something to aspire to. I've learned that great CMOs are great people, that they have values that are a good blend of commercial instinct and desire to have their brands make a difference in the world. And it's the blend that matters. Taken in isolation, neither of those elements are sufficient. Great CMOs also build great teams. They have the capacity to build organizations where there is psychological safety. Simply said, people are comfortable speaking in draft form with these leaders. They defer to their teams. They integrate their teams. They challenge them also. They have this gorgeous blend of high devotion and high expectation. And finally, I think they know who they are when it's time to move on, and how to communicate their value in the context of an organization. And the great ones, it's always blends. They balance building their personal brand and representing their organization with building their organization's brand and amplifying other stakeholders. And finally, I'd say they're always learning. Because the most exciting thing about our profession is the fact that it is so dynamic. I, I said that that was the last question. It's not. I have one more that your answer triggered. This idea of personal branding, it was on the cover of HBR, you know, in the May-June issue. Uh, a lot of people like personal branding, uh, you know, that feels icky. You know, I don't have a big ego. I don't want to have a big ego. I just want to do my job. I want to help my people build my brand. But if you don't build your personal brand, it's very hard, I think, to convey what you value. So you have done a beautiful job 
of building your personal brand. You've done it in a way that is not egocentric, that is generous, that is kind, that is smart, and that is very clear in researching you for the show, very clear about what's important to you and and what you stand for and why that's in beautiful alignment with Siegel and Gale. So any thoughts for our listeners as we end the show about how you have done that, what's been easy, what's been challenging, and if they want to follow a similar kind of path, what have you learned? So that's a deep one, but at a very high level, I would say we all have a personal brand. The question is whether you manage it or not. And your brand, if you consider that language to be icky, shift it, call it your reputation. Mm -hmm. And that frame, because I, I think a lot about frames, Jim, and how you formulate a question, that may be more palatable. And frankly, as a CMO, I think it's your job because you are, back to the very beginning of our conversation, you're one of the most important ambassadors for your organization. So think about how you present and how you represent. And it's a little bit of a cop-out to say you don't want a personal brand because that's part of the job. Do it deftly, do it with grace, but don't ignore it. Because if you're not telling your story, don't leave it to others to interpret it. Back to the simplicity. Make it easy for people to know where you stand. I would be remiss not to offer you the opportunity to ask me a closing question. You're such a marvelous podcast host and convener yourself. So, Margaret, I'll turn it to you for the last word. Anything you'd like to ask me before we call it a day, as we say? So many questions for Jim Stengel. But... My overarching one is, what brings you joy in this industry? Well, it's always the people and the potential. I guess it's the two Ps, the people and potential we have. Uh, I love doing this show just because it, it gives me an opportunity one or two times a week to meet someone like yourself and be inspired, be renewed, be curious. So it's certainly the people. The reason I love going to Cannes every year, going to the A&A meetings, going to South by Southwest, whatever it might be. Yes, there's nice demos and products, but it's about the people and, and, and the potential of our industry. Absolutely. For doing wonderful things, for building brands that have a purpose, that, that make a difference in people's lives, that build businesses, that create value, and to make a positive impact. The reason I stayed at P&G, the company had a strong purpose, firm values, simplicity, and how it views people, performance, and, and brands. And, uh, and that's why I stayed. So it's people and potential. Final follow-up, if I may, because I'm bored. <laughs> okay, of course you may. <laughs> what are you committed to, Jim? I am committed to, I think I always have, but especially at this phase of my career, I'm committed to helping leaders be successful, happy, fulfilled, and, and feel like they have done some remarkable things in their life. If I can help leaders do that, and, and by the way, I think bringing a purpose to life in your brand is a way to do that. So a lot of people think I'm the purpose person. I think it's a how. The why is helping leaders realize their potential. That's what I'm committed to. 
Wonderful. Well, best of luck with that commitment, Jim. And thank you for the honor. Truly enjoy the conversation. Please do keep up the podcast. Keep up the great work. And same to you, Margaret. Honestly, this has been a joy. See you soon, IRL. That was my conversation with Margaret Malloy. Three takeaways from this one for your business, brand, and life. The first one is our job as CMOs is to generate pride. I love that simple thought. When you generate pride, you attract customers, you attract talent, and you attract great ideas. Second takeaway, this was a good lesson in how to be happy, successful, and have longevity in a company and in a role. Margaret is 10 years as CMO, which is about four times the normal tenure, and she said the drivers with the values of the company and the leadership and the relationship she had with the leaders. Third takeaway, simplicity as a driver in building financial value for your brand. There were so many good tips here on how to build a simple brand, but the quick one is have a brand that is simple in its offering, useful, and never ever forgets that they must surprise you to delight you. And last bonus takeaway, building a personal brand. Some of us shy away from that thought. It sounds like it's too egocentric. Margaret gave a great reason why we should all be explicit with our personal brand. It really is all about your reputation, which is the most important factor in your career. That's it for this episode of the CMO Podcast. If you found this helpful and entertaining, I would be so grateful if you could share our show with your friends. And I would be super happy if you subscribed so you can be updated as we publish new episodes. And if you really want to help, leave us a five-star rating and a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. The CMO Podcast is a Gallery Media Group original production.